Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green. I'm the host. <coughs> Sitting here looking out the window and watching the birds flit around and, and thinking about the fact that I've been sitting in front of this window for the last seven months doing the podcast and <coughs> working, doing the things that I do and watching birds and fox and turkeys, bears, watching life happen, watching people walk by, seeing a lot more activity since COVID for people walking and things like that. We've done a lot more walking and all that since COVID. And it's interesting now to, to see the leaves change. I sat and watched the leaves come out and now I'm watching the leaves change and seeing the, <clears throat> the season change. It's uh, rainy, uh, uh, ugly day, but the tr the beauty of the leaves right now is really nice looking out the window. And so I've watched life go by over the last seven months and, and seen that <clears throat> it's been the strangest time I've ever experienced in my life. We're, we're seven months into this thing. And it's hard to tell that we've made much progress, that much has changed. I'm sure that much has indeed changed, and, and some for the better. And it's hard to tell where it's going to go and, and when this is all going to end, quote, unquote. There's just no way to sort of get your head around the way life is now versus the way life was just eight short months ago in February when we first heard something about this COVID thing. It feels like it's never going to end, but seasons do end and seasons do change. And I wonder what changes are in store for the church, not just in America, but everywhere. I mean, people haven't been gathering to worship regularly. They haven't been gathering to fellowship to do Bible study and all that. And so you just wonder, well, what, where does that leave the church? When I look around, I see the world and I see the bitterness and the anger and the divisiveness. And it's not one side or the other responsible for this. There's, there's just division. And it's intentional. It's intentionally created division between people. And it's unhealthy. And I see it on Facebook. I see it everywhere I turn. And it's got to end. It's got to change. There's got to be a new day and a new way. So I want to talk a little bit about that today. <clears throat> I want to talk about what happens when God gets fed up. When God has had enough. So kind of begin that with the idea <coughs> of Moses on the mountain in Exodus 32, the first 14 verses. And <clears throat> I'm going to give you some Jewish interpretation of this as part of it, but I'm going to be clear when I do that. <clears throat> so it begins with when the people saw Moses delayed to come down the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know. What has become of him? So when the people saw Moses delayed, so the way Jewish interpretation of that goes is that they 
were told, expected, that Moses would be on the mountain 40 days, and they miscalculated the days. And so once the 40th day had come and gone, and in their counting, they panicked because Moses hadn't returned, and so they need something else, and they need gods, little g gods, to go before them the way that Moses had gone before them. And then they say, as for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. That The important thing here is, is that you can read that as saying Moses, that they're ascribing the work of God to Moses, but they're not. That's a different verb. Brought us up is a different verb from the verb that God used for what he did. So they're using a different word. They're ascribing work to Moses in bringing them up. He had a role in doing that, and he did. He had a leadership role. He was the one who followed God. He was the one who heard from God. And we saw that last week in the giving of the law. They were afraid, and then they said that if we come into his presence, we'll die, but you go. And so their fear here is they need Moses. They need someone to go before them. To the Lord. But, but how bizarre to think that Aaron can make gods for them to do that. Make us gods who shall go before us. It's a commandment. Up. Make us gods who shall go before us. They're telling him what to do. And in that, Aaron abdicates his given leadership role before the people. So then he tells them what to do. Take off the rings of gold in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. This is the gold that they brought out of Egypt, remember. The lovely parting gifts the Egyptians gave them as they begged them to leave. So all the people took off the rings of gold and brought them to Aaron. And he received them from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Hear that? He worked at it. He made these things, intentionally worked it. And they said, they said, the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And then he made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Jewish interpretation here is, is that Aaron counted differently. And so he's stalling for time. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Not today. Tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. And so that's the way they understand what Aaron's doing here is he's buying time. He's pushing this thing out a day, slowing the people down. But they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This word play. The connotation there is not that they're playing volleyball and baseball. It's sexual connotation. And I don't know how much you might know about the other religions around at the time, but they were heavily oriented towards sex. And if you read Romans 1, you'll see Paul, who says, as soon as you deny this God, sex becomes a problem. 
is what he's that's his argument in Roman one Romans one is that's where it goes first is sexual immorality. Hmm. A nation that rejects God could hardly look much different from our nation today. Obsessed with sex in every shape, form, and fashion. And in fact, we're inventing new fashions. We're inventing new fashions where people can say, well, I'm not really what it looks like I am. I may have this equipment, but I don't identify as that. I'm something else. And so we've gone to that point so remarkably rapidly in the last 20 years that it's unbelievable to see how we've gone from the sexual revolution to anything goes to the Episcopal Church and others approving of homosexuality and not only approving of it, but blessing unions. And they're not the only ones. There are others. But Roman Catholics will argue that this began with uh, birth control, actually. And they blame the Anglicans for it. The Archbishop of Canterbury approved of birth control. And they say that opened the door to everything else. And it's certainly difficult to argue with that idea. There's no restraint because I can always fix that mistake and pretend it didn't happen. We can do abortion. We can kill innocent, unborn children. And then it's Katie bar the door. And so what the, what the way they interpret this is this word play is that it's, it's sex. It's like the, the gods, Baal, for instance, is a fertility god. And so they see rain as a different bodily fluid of veils, let's say. That, that, uh, and so what they want, what they do, their worship would have included um, sex out in the open to get Baal aroused so that he would have sex with one of his consorts and thereby provide the rain to make the crops fertile. And so the suggestion here is that's exactly what happened, that this is gross immorality 10 minutes later after Moses doesn't come down. And so in the midst of that, God says to Moses, go down for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They turned quickly aside from the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I've seen this people and behold, it's a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. The first part of that, he's saying, your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God's using that in a very particular way. He is trying to distance himself from the people because the people have distanced themselves from God. And so the Jewish interpretation can be that it's, it's Abraham, not Abraham, Moses, who's actually being replaced with these gods, not God himself. And so he says, they've turned away from everything I just told them. Everything about idolatry, everything about having other gods before me, everything about everything. They've defiled themselves. And then says, <clears throat> Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. So what does Moses do? Exactly the opposite of what God just commanded him. God says, leave me alone that my anger may burn against them. So Moses hears that and interprets it apparently to mean the last thing in the world that I'm going to do is leave you alone with your wrath. 
he implored the Lord and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised, I will give to your offspring and they'll inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing upon his people. And later when he makes the self-declaration, he talks about being long-suffering and faithful. So even this sin, this horrible sin, is not enough for the Lord to destroy his people who he's formed and who he, who he has done so much for already. But Moses gets in the middle of God's anger and won't let him alone. In fact, reminds God of promises he has made and makes the other argument, well, what would these people say? You've already gained glory in the sight of the Egyptians. What would it look like now if it looks like this God had an evil intent for the Hebrews. So he pleads with God that he be faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You can't do this. And God relents. Moses passed the test that God devised for him here in asking him to leave him alone so that his anger may burn hot against his people and that he can then start all over again with Moses. But Moses wants no part of that. He remembers the patriarch and he pleads for the people. He intercedes for those who have rejected him and rejected God. It's a powerful thing. It's obviously a type of Christ that he does this at that moment that he comes to make intercession for sin on his own. You remember last week we had a parable that Jesus told about the um, landowner who prepared a vineyard, put a wall around it, put a tower in it so that they could be, they could guard the place and planted that whole vineyard and then turned it over to the tenants and at the end of it they reject his rightful demand for their rents from the produce of the land, and then ultimately they kill his son. After killing the messengers who had sent before, obviously some of those are prophets in that parable. And then he ultimately killed, they killed the son, and Jesus said it's going to be taken away from them and given to other tenants. Well, here today, in Matthew 22, the first 14 verses, Jesus tells another parable. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those... <coughs> who were invited to the feast, but they would not come. So what you did was you planned the wedding. You told them this is going to be when it will be, but the exact time isn't known until the food is all prepared. And so at that time, people should have been prepared, ready and excited to come to the wedding feast of the king, but they would not come. And he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention to them either. 
and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, and tell <coughs> to the main roads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered them, all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had a wedding garment. Now, the way this worked is when you came to that feast, you were actually provided a wedding garment that became a part of the um, sign that you were a guest at that wedding. And he said to them, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Again, a parable of taking away the kingdom and its benefits from those who refused his invitation, who treated him shamefully and scornfully. And so he invites others and they come and one refuses for whatever reason to wear the wedding garment and he throws him into outer darkness. The wedding garment is Jesus. The way you get into the wedding feast of the Lamb is to be covered in the blood of Christ. The blood shed on Calvary, the blood that pleads a different word from the blood of Abel, which God says cried out to the ground, from the ground for vengeance. Jesus' blood pleads not for vengeance, but forgiveness and mercy. And it's efficacious in doing so. And we know that because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We know that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We know that it speaks an efficacious word. It accomplishes exactly what it was intended to do. And the resurrection from the dead is the proof that that's the cure. That is the wedding garment. We're clothed in his righteousness by trusting in the power of the blood of the crucifixion. That his death atoned for sin. It's important to see that Jesus laid down his life completely in order that we might have life. We who are unworthy are made worthy by the blood of Jesus. Period, end of sentence, is the only wedding garment acceptable at the feast. So God finally gave them a final opportunity, sent his son, and they killed his son. But he's had an everlasting covenant with his people. And so there's still hope even for them. And, and we know that because that's exactly how the church gets started in the book of Acts, is, is that God brings in his people. And, and on the day of Pentecost, when, pre, when the people gather and Peter preaches the sermon, they ask at the end, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And they could have said, we killed Messiah. I don't think that's going to be enough. But Peter says, that's what it is. It's not trusting in anything you can do to be saved. It's trusting in what Jesus has done. And we know that his sacrifice was acceptable because God raised him from the dead. It's never about what we do. 
to get salvation. It's about trusting in him, trusting in his blood, trusting that what he did not only proved he was worthy, which we see then in Revelation 5, only he was worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the one seated on the throne. He's worthy for that, but he's also worthy. His righteousness makes us worthy to come into his presence with thanksgiving and rejoicing. And so you, maybe you've been in a season where, where you wondered about that, whether you wondered whether your sins made you unfit entirely for the kingdom of God. But the word is, no, Jesus makes you worthy one way or another. You were never worthy on your own merits for the kingdom. You're only worthy because of the merits of Jesus Christ. The only one, the firstborn from the dead. So then the question comes, right? So how then should we live? Since we believe this to be true, so we believe that we are acceptable to God through him. And so that brings us to this next season of time. The first season of time gets you to the cross, gets you into the kingdom. And then how then shall we live? And Paul answers that in Philippians 4, 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. And then he gives a series of commandments. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. Agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There's apparently some conflict between these two women and and Paul's calling them to be reconciled for the good of the entire body. And he's calling the body of Christ there in Philippi to become involved in that, to help them so that the community can be united again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That reasonableness goes back to the entreaty to Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Be reasonable. Don't let small things separate. The Lord's at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made, to God, made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't spend all your time worrying about things. Paul says, go to the Lord. Pray to him. Make supplication and thanksgiving along with your requests. And then let it go. Don't be anxious. Trust. In him, and you'll have the peace that you need if you'll let things go, leave them at the altar. And then he goes on to say, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if anything's worthy of praise, think about these things, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's telling them how to live. And it begins with what you set your mind on. Maybe right now you set your mind on politics and you're, you're having a lot of anxiety because your guy is not looking all that good right now. Well, remember this, that guy is not your savior. These are short-term things. These are earthly things, temporal things. If you look at the history of civilizations, 
you can see that civilizations do exactly what I told you about at the beginning, and that is they do the same things the seasons do. They wax and they wane. Sometimes they completely disappear. Jesus speaks in Revelation. We see him speaking to the church in Ephesus. And he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches that he's written to. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are the evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. I mean, this is a lot of good stuff that Jesus is saying, right? He says, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. In spite of all the works that you've done, you've had worked toil, patient endurance, can't bear with the evil, tested those who are apostles or not, and found them to be false. You endured patiently and bore up persecution for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But, but this I have against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And that's... There's a lot of praise there. But what did they do? They've abandoned love. Love for him and love for one another. Love for the world. And he says, that's going to cost you everything if you abandon that. We can get so bogged down in what we're doing and find that to be the most important thing. And what Jesus is calling the people of Ephesus back to, the church there, who's been a strong witness, they, he's saying, if you don't love and go back to the love you had for me as opposed to all the stuff you do. I'll take your lampstand away from you. All those things are commendable, but they're not what he desires without love. And so Jesus is very clear about what's the most important thing, and that's why Paul's pointing it back. You can stand against abortion. You can stand against any number of things, but if you don't have love, Jesus says, I'll take your lampstand away. We can get all the right um, theology. We can get all the right um, actions to take. But if you don't have love, Jesus says, I'll take it away from you. It's not truly meaningful unless it's love. And so this end of the thing where Paul says, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence, worthy of praise. Think about these things. He's pointing us above the fray, pointing us in the same way that Solomon points us in the book of Ecclesiastes, that there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing under the sun to be desired. So look above the sun to find the things that you desire, the things that you should desire. And in Colossians, Paul tells us, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Paul's telling us to, to in some ways, there's, there's a bit of Platonic philosophy in here. Now, Plato lived in about the 4th century B.C., but, but one of the things that you've probably heard is the, the idea of Platonic idealism, or Platonic ideals. And it's the idea that what we see here is only a mirror image of something greater and something perfect. And you can kind of get that impression when you think about what it means to be created in the image of God. 
that whatever we are, there's a perfected ideal of that called God. And we're supposed to strive to become the perfect representation on earth of that which is above. Jesus did that. He enfleshed the righteousness, the love, the mercy, and all the characteristics of God and displayed those on this earth. He's one of a kind, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to be like him. And so when Paul points us to things that are honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, or worthy of praise, he's pointing us not to looking at the forms of those things on earth, because there's always a way to criticize those things. They're, they're imperfect, and they're imperfect because they're our work. Nothing is completely flawless. And so we should strive towards the higher ideal of those things. doesn't mean we should jettison things on earth that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. No, what it means is, is that we should seek to make those things known, but we should make them seek to make them known in a way that's higher than anything we've ever experienced. Our ideal, our goal, should always be to make those things known and strive towards that, coupled with love. And if we do that, then we're doing the work of God. But we're to set our mind on those things. So if you're sitting here right now and you've got your mindset on football or basketball or baseball, all of them being played at the same time, or if you've got your mind on politics, or if you've got your mind on how to make more money, if you've got your mind on COVID, if you've got your mind on anything else, anything that makes you anxious, for instance, then look to other things, Paul says. If you want to get your mind right, if you want to get your heart right, heart right before God, take your eyes off of all those things and look at the higher ideals and think on those things, he says. Set your mind, fix your mind on those things. Get it off everything else and get on those. So how should we live once we've accepted Jesus Christ? That's it. He's telling you exactly how to live. Rejoice. Stand firm. Agree. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Don't be contentious. Don't be anxious. And set your mind on those other things. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you, Paul says. So yes, we do have a God of judgment. But we have a God of mercy. Just provide it away. But he tells us, church, Christian, get your mind off all that other stuff. It may not be in the gutter, but the things you might be thinking about, the things where you might dwell, are not getting you where you want to be, which is to be more like Jesus, to be more like the Father, to be a better icon, representation, image of the living God, which is the way we make him known to the world. <clears throat> So there you have it. We, which season are you in? Are you in the season of repentance or are you in the season of life? Where are you? If you're in the season of life, then listen to Paul and set your mind on things above. Focus, dwell, fix your heart and your mind on those things. Get your, your head and your heart out of the world. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I appreciate that. I 
appreciate the time that you've given me today. I pray that you have a blessed week. I pray that you begin to, to get your mind fixed on him and dwell in the heavenly realms in your heart with love. Have a great week. Thanks for listening.